Those are the sounds of Mahalia Jackson at the March on Washington 60 years ago today. Our entire program today, all three hours, dedicated to commemorating, celebrating this uh, demonstration for freedom and justice, the greatest the country had ever known. Uh, again, 60 years ago today on the National Mall. Uh, women, the patriarchy was so real, so rich back then, uh, that women did not get a chance to speak at the March on Washington, even though Dr. Dorothy Hyde was one of the big six uh, who helped to organize the March on Washington. Uh, Dr. Hyde can be seen in many photos on the stage. I had had a chance to, to befriend Dr. Hyde in her lifetime, and we had many conversations about this. So there she is in all the photos, but she doesn't get to speak, even though she's one of the big six organizing that march. Helga Jackson, though, because of her uh, amazing gift of artistry, uh, was allowed to get to the podium and to the microphone and to sing. And as she always did, she turned that place out. Helga Jackson did on that day. And as you heard us saying in conversation with both uh, William Barber earlier today and Cornell West, we owe Mahalia Jackson a debt of gratitude because as King was in his speech, if you listen to that I Have a Dream speech and listen to it in parts, as I've done more times than I can count, and I've written a book about it, of course, uh, written a book that uh, includes a chapter about that, that particular speech. He starts out high, he dips a little bit, and Mahalia Jackson, who had already performed, is on the stage seated behind Dr. King as he's speaking. And if you listen to the tape very, very carefully, you can hear her faintly say on the tape, Tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. And because of the advice from Helga Jackson, Dr. King put his prepared remarks in his pocket and started riffing on I Have a Dream and the rest, as they say, is history. But Helga could feel that he needed to pick it up a little bit and shift gears. And so he did. And as I say, um, the rest becomes history. As a matter of fact, the speech was going to be called Normalcy Never Again. That was King's working title for his speech that day, Normalcy Never Again. It becomes known as the I Have a Dream speech, courtesy of Mahalia Jackson, who, uh, again, uh, knew what the spirit felt like. And uh, when the spirit moved, she knew how to respond to it. And she felt that spirit and yelled out to Martin, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. She heard it before, and he took off. And as I said earlier, the rest, as they say, is history. I mentioned Cornell West a moment ago. In case you've just tuned in, you missed a great hour of a dialogue with Dr. Cornell West. Check out the podcast later today. If you missed uh, that conversation, well, we recorded that conversation uh, this weekend in Mississippi as we celebrated the Emmett Till anniversary weekend. And I'd be remiss if I did not say a big thank you to Jackson State. I called JSU and said I'm headed to Mississippi. I need to use your studio to record a conversation with Dr. West. They opened the doors, uh, opened the doors to their studio, a brilliant, beautiful facility on the campus of Jackson State. So we shout out that HBCU for allowing us to use their studios at Jackson State to record that conversation with Dr. West. We're in our third and final hour today celebrating 60 years since the march on Washington. Two hours, uh, two conversations rather, in this hour. On the B side of this hour, as a teenager, Clay Carson actually attended the march on Washington. He could never have imagined then that decades later, Coretta Scott King would choose him as the scholar to oversee the King Papers Project. So we'll be joined by Stanford's Claiborne Carson uh, on the back side of this hour. We commenced this hour with Dr. Gretchen Soren on the uncelebrated contributions of the black women who helped to shape this historic gathering six years, six decades. <laughs> I wish it were six years, six decades ago. Dr. Soren, good to have you on the program. How are you today? 
I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I, if I complain about being ingrate, I'm delighted to, to be alive <laughs> and to be here and uh, more excited to be in dialogue with you. Let me just get a, a brief well, it's answer. it's good to be back with you. It's good to have you back. Let me get a brief answer to this first question, and then we'll jump uh, forward and, and spend some uh, some time in deeper reflection. But when you think about the, the patriarchy that was so alive and well then, in some ways, it's to be expected that women did not have, uh, didn't get the respect they deserved to be at the podium that day. But how do you read that um, again, sixty years later? You know, we were we were in a different time, mm-hmm. and the expectations of women were different, um, and the expectations of men were very different. Uh, and I, I think it mobilized the women, and that was something that was really positive. It mobilized the women who were involved in the. Uh, planning of this march to really say, you know, gender's important too. Mm -hmm. And we've really got to think about gender and get the men to think about gender as well as race. Uh, When you say mobilize the women, you mean by that exactly what? Um, At the end of the march, um, Pauli Murray um, and Dorothy Height Mm -hmm. decided that they were going to have a meeting. And they called it, after the march, what? Mm -hmm. And at that meeting they decided that it was really important to think about how are we going to make gender an issue as well as race. Women had always said, you know, we, we will stand up for our race and we will support our menfolk. But at, at the end of that march, after women were, I would say, pretty poorly treated, um, they decided that, that they would get involved in uh, in a really in a female movement, and you know many of the women like Pauli Murray mm-hmm. got involved in now the National Organization for Women. Sure, yeah. Um, sexism almost almost sidelined black women at this march. Um, you're hearing Dr. Gretchen Soren talk about how they were mobilized uh, beyond that march and how they fought back. A great deal more about that. We ain't leaving the sisters out today as we celebrate the march on Washington 60 years later on Tavis Smiley. <laughs> Speaking the truth, speaking the truth, this is the Tavis Smiley Show. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest uh, is Dr. Gretchen Soren as we continue our conversation about the 60th anniversary. Six decades since the March on Washington, she's a distinguished professor and director of the Cooperstown Graduate Program at the State University of New York. And I'm pleased to have her on in this hour as we talk about uh, the role that black women played in this iconic gathering 60 years ago. Let me start with this, uh, Dr. Thorne, if I can. How did the uncelebrated contributions of women um, shape the very essence of this historic event? And we'll talk more about this meeting afterwards and the mobilization that went uh, forward. But how did, how did their, their, their involvement, their, 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 their brain power, mm-hmm. uh, their presence shape this day 60 years ago well, today? You know, I think one of the things that is, is most amazing about the March on Washington is that sea of humanity. When you look out over the crowd and you see all of those people, and it was women who mobilized all of those crowds. It was across the country. It was church groups. It was the National Council of Negro Women. It was the Colored Women's Clubs. Um, It was the National Council of Churches. And these were all um, efforts that were led by women to get people to the march. And then women were, were coordinating the transportation. So in order to get people to march, right, you had to have trains and buses and planes and flights. So all, getting all those people there, getting that sea of humanity that we look, that we look at today and say, wow, that was really an, an incredible 
um, an incredible scene. That was all done by women, mm-hmm. and yet that was not really recognized. Um, and you talked about about the big six. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end, there's that iconic photograph in the White House mm-hmm. of uh, Roy Wilkins and, and A. Philip Randolph and James Farmer and, and John Lewis and Martin Luther King standing with the president. There's not a woman among them. Yeah. There's not a single, not a single woman. And those women that did all of that work were not were not recognized, except with a a very brief, very small tribute to women, tribute to black women that was a part of um, the event. And that was very, very, very brief. In fact, it was less than less than 200 words. Mm-hmm. How do you think, um, what's your read on how Dorothy Hyde endured that? As I said earlier, I got to know her in her lifetime. And I, as I look back on my life, I, I am so grateful for all the people that I've had a chance to interview repeatedly and uh, who I regarded as friends and hung out with and had dinners with. And they were at my house. I'm at their house. And so Dr. Hyde and I were friends. We've had many conversations about this. But as you look back on it, uh, just what you just uh, what you just uh, detail for us about the photo that we know well, those of us who study this kind of history, uh, they wouldn't let her in the photo even. Like as, as a black woman who did all the work uh, with other black women to, to get these crowds turned out, to get no recognition, that's a, that's a bitter pill to swallow, is it not? Well, and I'm, I'm so jealous that you knew her because I think she was an incredible woman. Mm-hmm. And so, so few people in this country know her. They know Rosa Parks, but they don't know the incredible president of the National Council of Negro Women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, she said something on that, on that day. She said they were, uh, after, the, after the march, she said something about, it was something like, they were happy to include women in the human family, uh, but there was no question about who headed that family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the men. Um, and she had such an incredible impact on the civil rights movement in organizing, in, you know, in, in, in bringing women together and getting women involved, and then had no role, basically, um, at the March on Washington because the men basically wouldn't let her in. And as I said, it was a different time. It was a different time. It was attitudes about women were different. I think uh, just putting Merle Evers in the program as Mrs. Medgar Evers tells you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me more about uh, about the, the meeting and the mobilization after the march that you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, there was a lot. There was a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. among the women because they had met with the with the big six they had met with the men and they had tried to get um in at least one woman speaker um and the speakers were very very brief ruby d was briefly allowed to speak lena horn said one word mm-hmm. one word into the microphone freedom and that was it so uh they were ignored they were absolutely ignored um and it was it was in in a really upsetting opportunity, a missed opportunity for women. I would say the role that women played that was most visible at the march was the music. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Clay Carson is going to talk about that because he, he talks about um, the music as the glue of the movement, that, that that not only was the glue of the movement, but was the glue of the event. Yeah. How do you hold this event together with all these people from all these different parts of the country and, and different Worlds, but I think one of the things that really upset the women was that the young folks, the the, the kids, um, John Lewis mm-hmm. was you know was a, a teenager. Um, they f- basically threatened the older civil rights leaders and said, "If you do not allow us to speak, if you do not allow us to have a voice, we're going to march. Yep. We're going to demonstrate. We're going to make trouble." And so 
they allowed them, uh, they allowed John Lewis to speak, although they were terrified of his of his, of, <laughs> his, of his speech. <laughs> yes, they were terrified. <laughs> they let him speak, but they were scared of his speech. Um, that is true, and and, 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 and edited it. They did. I've got to say that they edited his speech. I mean, he still got he still got his. We played a bit of it earlier in today's program. You weren't here, obviously. We played a bit of it earlier. John Lewis's speech. He still got his dig into the Kennedy administration. He he got a couple of digs in. Um, yep. but, but, um, I shouldn't say digs. He got, they're not digs. He told the truth. They weren't just digs. He told the uh, truth. He, he, told the he, truth. Told the truth. he got a couple of shots in. Um, but, but let me, it leads me to ask, given what you just laid out and we, many of us know that story well, that they did in fact threaten to protest and march against the march if they were not allowed to speak. And John Lewis was their designated spokesperson. Why did the women not do the same thing? You think? I think the women had always felt that they needed to support men that, that, Black men had been emasculated by, by whites in this country, mm-hmm. and black women wanted to show we support our men. We, we're, we're there behind them, and they didn't want to have that as a public. They didn't want to have a public fight over this. Yeah. They wanted to be supportive of black men, and I think that's the, that's the way it's always been. Um, but, and I think a lot of women didn't realize how, how gendered the, the problem really was. Right. You know, the... the they didn't. They didn't realize that. And you know, and this in some ways goes back to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ha- the same thing happens with white women. When white women are trying to get the vote, um, you know, the the white men are saying, "Well, you know, just wait, take your time." Um, when black women are trying to get the vote in the 19th century, Frederick Douglass is saying, "Well, it's our it's our turn now." Mm-hmm. Meaning black men, mm-hmm. it's our turn now. You you have to wait. So I don't think this is anything new. Yeah. Um, I think I think I think it's historically the 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 same, exactly the same. Yeah. So, so how do you read then, in retrospect, that Mahalia Jackson got more time at the mic than anybody else? I, I love Mahalia Jackson. Uh, more importantly, my mother listening right now loves Mahalia Jackson. Uh, I take nothing away from her artistry and her gift. But in retrospect, how do you read that a sister singing song got the most time on the mic? Isn't that sad? <laughs> yeah, well. But it not not only was it Mahalia Jackson, but it was Marian Anderson, sure. and it was Joan Baez and Odetta. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you add up all the time that women had, it was all music. Mm-hmm. It was all the music. The you know the the even Jesse Choir. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're what we're saying is there was a view that there was a specific role that women played, and a public role. It was also that the men didn't want to be upstaged. Mm-hmm. You know, as as important as they as they were, but they did not want to be upstaged by by any of these women. So, Dr. Cornell West was our guest in the last hour, and we were in Mississippi uh, this weekend together for the yeah. annual uh, annual Emmett Till anniversary weekend there. So, he and I sat for a conversation that I recorded in Mississippi that we just played in the hour uh, prior to this. And this is not a, this was not a part of our conversation on on air, but uh, he and I had a conversation in the car. We were driving around in Mississippi. We were talking about Dr. King, who's our a hero, of both of ours. I I regard Dr. King as the greatest mm-hmm. greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment. He's our greatest American that we've produced, and we can de- we can debate that. But the point is, we were talking about Dr. King this weekend, and somehow we got into this conversation about what indictment we would have of Dr. King. We love this brother so. 60 years after the March on Washington, what would our indictment be of his life? And he and I together came up with three things about which we would indict Dr. King as much as we love him were he here in this studio right now. And one of those three things is that King knew full well that there was a bullet with his name on it. He knew 
that the death threats were increasing. Mm -hmm. He knew it was just, he told others, mm -hmm. he knew he was not going to live a long life. He talks about it the night before, as we all know, in mm -hmm. the mountaintop speech, he's killed the very next day. So he knew there was a bullet, again, chasing him with his name on it, and yet he didn't leave anything behind for his family, for Coretta and those babies. Now, it's one thing if you drop dead, as we said, Dr. West and I, in this car this weekend in Mississippi. It's one thing if you drop dead, uh, 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 Dr. Storm. It's another thing if you know you're mm -hmm. going to die mm -hmm. and you ain't got no life insurance policy. All the money you're raising for the movement is a beautiful thing. All the money you got for the Nobel Peace Prize speech, uh, no, 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 the Nobel Peace Prize honor, big check for that. Wonderful thing. But he didn't put anything away for his family. So we indict him lovingly on that issue. I raise mm -hmm. that because it speaks again to the patriarchy of that time. Here's a guy who knows he's going to die at some point and doesn't tuck anything away for Coretta and his children. Now, they have the IP rights, intellectual property rights to all his stuff, but they didn't leave, he didn't leave anything away for them. I raise that to ask in retrospect, never mind the fact, and I get it, it was a different day. But how do we indict all of those men that none of them fought for a single woman to get up and give a major speech that day. How do we indict the men in 2023? We are all, we are, whether we like it or not, we are all subjects of our culture. Yes. And they, too, were subjects of, of this culture and the way the culture was structured. And it was definitely a, a male-dominated culture. Uh, and they were men. Um, and that's... <laughs> that's about it, huh? The sexism... Yeah. Which, I mean, it really sidelined black women, and that, it's part of our culture. It's part of American culture. It's not just, you know, it's, we're not saying this is, this is black culture. We're saying this is part of American culture, and they were part of that. Yeah. Um, how, then, do you read the progress, or lack thereof, I'll take it either way, the progress or lack thereof of black women since this march in 1963? I think it was the very beginning of black women standing up and saying, we are, we're not going to take this anymore, mm. and that gender must be an issue that we discuss with, with our men and with other women, um, with white women, with all women, that we have to stand up and ha make sure that our gender is not misrepresented. Now, I always say, you know, two steps forward, three steps back, because mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not sure exactly where we are um, after after Obama, you yeah. know, the, in the post-Obama years, there's been kind of a, a back step <laughs> mm -hmm. or two in this country, generally, where women are concerned. Mm -hmm. But not just where women are concerned, where black people are concerned. I mean, look at, look at what happened over the, over the weekend. Sure. So, one step forward. And I think President Obama talks about the, the arc of the moral universe, which is a 19th century phrase. The arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. Well, I say it only bends toward justice if we bend it. Oh, I say that all you the time. You have to bend it. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are simpatico with me. I say that all the time. And it's, it's funny you should say that because one of the three indictments, I didn't want to get into it. I didn't have time. But one of the three indictments we had of Dr. King, Dr. West and I were talking about was that very line. I mean, so much of what everything King said was brilliant. I mean, so much it, his stuff wasn't just poetic. It was it was it was prose, right? He was so beautiful mm -hmm, in the way he mm -hmm. phrased everything. But that's one line we'd want to talk to him about. We said that in the car. So here you come now, un, uh, unbeknownst to you, raising that issue. We would say, Dr. King, who said that all the time, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Dr. King, no, it does not. It doesn't that's bend right. toward justice. You got to bend it, man. You got to make <laughs> that thing bend toward justice. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. 
And I think what that says to all of us is that we must continue to be activists. We can't sit on our laurels and say, well, you know, the, the, the work is over. The work is not, is not over. We have to do the work. Yeah. We have to do the work so, now. Yeah. So speaking of doing the work, i got about 90 seconds here, maybe two minutes. Tell me how you respond to this. Uh, and you sort of teed this up. I want to just put a finer point on it. So you have women who are denied, essentially, even though they were, they were at the epicenter of creating that march and making it happen. They're denied uh, a chance to be heard, really. Fast forward to 2023, to your point, now you got women's uh, reproductive rights uh, under attack. Um, we mm-hmm. discussed on this program the other day uh, the work of Ed Blum trying to stop black women from getting loans for small businesses because he's attacking diversity uh, in on a variety of other fronts as he did affirmative action at the U.S. Supreme Court level. So to your point, in many ways, the lives of black women and their freedoms are under attack all over again 60 years later. How are we to read that in this so-called democracy? How do we read anything in the so-called yeah, democracy? Our, yeah. our democracy is moving in a in a very frightening way, in a very frightening direction. I think right now, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're not moving toward democracy. We're moving toward fascism. Yeah. Um, I know that sounds harsh, nope. but it. it <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't sound harsh. I'm laughing again. The audience knows we just had a spirited conversation with Cornell West about fascism. Here you come in the final hour, and you're raising that word again. And the, the truth of the matter is that people have to have the courage to call it what it is. Do they not? Yes. Yeah. Y- yes. We have to, we have to call it what it is. Um, and rep- you're right. Reproductive rights are under attack. Um, voting rights are under sure. voting rights sure. are under attack. Something that we thought was settled. That's right. We thought that was settled, and now there's there are moves to prevent people from voting, to prevent young people from voting, and to prevent black people from voting. Yeah. And we, you know, uh, it's it's these are frightening times we live in. Yeah. Here's to black women. Uh, here's to black women. There is no march on Washington 60 years ago today. If black women are not at the epicenter of making it happen, and we didn't want to have this celebration day without referencing and making that point loudly and strongly, uh, as Dr. Gretchen Soren has done, distinguished professor and director of the Cooperstown Graduate Program at the State University of New York. Dr. Soren, good to have you on. All the best to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much.